gentlemen, I would like to formally declare that Mrs. Mary Robinson has been, form, has been duly elected as President of Ireland. Good evening, I want to go out and dance in the street with joy at what this election means. And I know that there are thousands of us who have this inner sense that some kind of a wall has come down on the old politics in Ireland. I want to be president for all the people because I was elected by men and women of all parties and none, by many with great moral courage who stepped out from the faded flags of the Civil War and voted for a new Ireland, and above all, by the women of Ireland, Manon Heron. happened in the Philippines when, the, when the, uh, Corey Aquino took over. The people came out and voted. I've always admired Mary Robinson for her policies, for what she stands for. For the last 20 years, she's been great. She's led the way for the women of Ireland. I feel that it's the greatest thing that ever happened since Gorbachev took down the Berlin Wall. <laughs> people of Ireland, let us stand for the playing of the presidential salute. to this province, to this county, and particularly to this town. 
the seventh Uthran Herden, one of your own, Mary Robinson. The homecoming was sweet. President-elect Robinson's first public appearance after her election was in her hometown of Ballina, County Mayo, where she addressed the crowd at Moylet's Corner, where Eamon de Valera and John A. Costello, in their time, had rallied their supporters. Tonight, Mrs. Robinson was lauded by Mayo men and women from different parties, including Fianna Fáil Junior Minister Sean Killeary and Fine Gael Chief Whip Jim Higgins. Later, at a thank you reception for local supporters, Mary Robinson told me how she felt to be back in Ballina as President-elect. Obviously, it was an enormous honour and um, a fantastic, um, tumultuous warmth from the people of Ballina, but it was more than that. Um, They shared a vision uh, of what this election has been about and a vision of Ireland that I would hope to represent. Uh, It was right that this election lit a candle and I saw it in their faces and in their eyes, the young and the old. And I think it was more than just a warm greeting for somebody from the town. Um, it was more than any of us. And I have an enormous sense of um, great humility and great honour to represent on behalf of the people the kind of Ireland that they want to have represented and want to have better known. And that's what brought people out into the street. That was what today was all about. And that gives me um, a most extraordinary uh, sense of purpose for the next seven years. With the Robinson entourage on her homecoming was Declan Geraghty, coordinator of her bus tour and one of the close personal friends who championed her campaign. It's, it's hard to put that in a few words, but... Um the, the best way of, of describing that would be that it was a task of love on the, on the one side, um, coupled with a desire to give the people of Ireland someone as president that they would be proud of. Um, through the campaign and, and most of Mary's uh, immediate organisation would have been very close friends that have been built up over the years um, then we would have taken on professionals on board to, to guide us through the difficult areas where we didn't have that expertise um, there was a certain bonding a uniting in the team um, that isn't to say that we didn't have our fights and our, and our disagreements We, of course we had, everyone has uh, personalities clash um, but we, we, we got on with the task involved and it was the most united um, organisation that I've ever been involved in. And that was all really because of one person. And that person was Mary Robinson. Anya Kilcullen is the sole Workers' Party representative on Ballina Urban Council. She shared in Mary's victory night. Here in Ballina, this campaign was run on a totally non-party basis. I worked for Mary Robinson... I canvassed for her, I gave out leaflets, I stood outside the polling booths on the election day because I recognised what Mary stood for. I admire what she has done over the years. Uh, it's over, for over 20 years, Mary has been initiating and working for human rights and for women's rights. And right down through the years, I followed her career with interest. And she has all down through the years she has given me hope that this woman who's so capable so articulate can exp- gave expression to a lot of the things that I felt deep inside and I think it is wonderful that she is there as the first lady of the land now uh, I only hope that um, 
Orsanukhtron or her her tenancy there in Orsanukhtron won't stifle the tremendous mind that is there or the tremendous ability she has to highlight issues and to fight for issues. I hope it will continue to be that she will be able to work within the setup there. I don't know. She comes from from uh, an upper middle class background in in, in Ballina which is not a particularly upper-middle-class uh, town. She's gone to Dublin. She's gone to Trinity College. Uh, she's now, I suppose, part of the Dublin Four set, a Dublin Four liberal. What type of, of difficulties are there in selling a president like that in a town like Ballina? Uh It can be quite difficult. Fortunately, Mary Robinson's own personality is very gentle, very sincere. Uh, she comes across as being a very humane person. But... Uh, personally, I found that uh, I met up with great difficulties with people who felt that there was a big class divide there. They felt that Mary belonged to a very, very privileged class. They could not identify with her. Uh, she came from a background where of, of privilege. She went to a private school. She went to boarding school. She went to Trinity, Trinity College. Uh, she achieved an awful lot that people in this town can't really, uh, don't aspire to because of the poverty, because of the underprivileged, because of unemployment, because of the massive emigration that there has always been from this town. And uh, in the early stages of, of, of my own personal dealings with people uh, on, the, on the campaign trail, I had to overcome a lot of difficulties in this line, trying to explain to people that Mary Robinson cared, that she showed she cared, that her track record extended not over the last seven months, but over 20, 23 years possibly. That even while a student in Trinity, she was speaking out on matters of human rights. Right down along the line, she fought for issues where the ordinary woman of the street benefited. And this has been Mary Robinson's record. And I pointed out that her privileged background should be overlooked, that her track record as a worker in the field was the thing that we should be looking at. And what about the, what about the, uh, the social issues with which she is identified? Because, again, on things like the, the referendum that we had during the 80s, East Mayo, including Ballina, uh, has a fairly conservative record. So, so how do they take to her liberal image? Um, there was a lot of propaganda, really, against Mary Robinson because of her very liberal attitude in the two referenda in the past. Uh, you're right, Mayo's vote was very, very low uh, on both of those referenda. They really did not vote for the side Mary Robinson was taking. But I was at pains to point out to the people that I spoke to when they said that Mary Robinson was an abortionist. I was ex at pains to explain Mary Robinson was not that she did not necessarily favour abortion in order to oppose it being included as an article in the Constitution. Uh, some people understood what I was saying, a lot of people didn't. They held to the, the fast food because there was so much being said behind the scenes to them that uh, this was the situation. Uh, it was very important to keep on hammering this point home to people, that you can oppose something being included in the Constitution without actually standing for the thing itself. Do you think that there was an undercurrent, an undercurrent of rumour against her in her own hometown? Yes, there was. Definitely was. Uh, I don't think just in her own hometown. I think it was all over the country. But I think because of her very privileged background, because of uh, the standing of the family in the town, that it was used as an, an, as an additional argument against uh, Mary Robinson by those who didn't want to see her elected. One, one of the things that shocked me, really, uh, during the course of the campaign was that young children 
were told by people in quite responsible positions that their mummies and daddies oughtn't to vote for Mary Robinson because she did bad things. Now that is a terrible thing to do to a young child. On Nicol Cullen and one of the smears. And also with Mary, husband Nick and daughter Tessa in Ballina that Sunday night where two of her brothers, including Adrian, the youngest, and her father, Dr Aubrey. There is definitely um, a bidding goodbye. There is, there is the feeling of losing a sister to a nation for seven years. I'm very moved by that, but I can see suddenly in the presence of um, security and of her importance um, that, you know, it's going to be seven years where Mary will belong to the state, and I'm totally happy about that. I think she will do a super job at it. Um, the reception in Balna today, my heart is so warm, so thrilled. I think there are wonderful people to come out in those numbers in fairly inclement weather to say, yes, this is our girl. We're so glad to see her from Balna, from Mayo, from Connacht. Very proud of that. And what about, were there doubts? Were there ever doubts in your mind that it could happen? Oh, yes, there were doubts in my mind. Oh, totally, honestly, way, way back in the very beginning there were doubts. But as it took off during the early summer, those doubts began to dispel. And I knew finally, when we got the buses running in Balna, you know, that we'd make it succeed. And, uh, and so we did. <laughs> and around the whole country. Right, Mr. Burke, what about, what about you? How do you Dr. feel tonight? Dr. Burke. I feel absolutely on top of the world. I never doubted it. I believed it. If you go to win, you win. The only time I really doubted it was when I heard the result. I could not believe it. That was the first time I really fell down. And what about all these liberal attitudes? Those aren't Balina attitudes, are they, that she's got? I think this country has grown up. I think we're able to analyse, understand liberal attitudes. There's no black and whites. There's greys and there's colours. And I think Mary is able to bring that and has brought that in a way that the people of Ireland are understanding it. I think, as I use the word again, Paul Durkin used it. In fact, I told him it at the time. We have grown up. And I'm sure you're all in fine voice now, ready to tell Mary Robinson what we think of her. Are you ready? After the count of three. One, two, three. irrespective of our political party, irrespective of our political beliefs, can share with Mary Robinson the joy of today, with Mary Robinson and her family, her husband Nick and their children, and her father Dr. Burke who is with us. We can share their joy. And let me say, I'm glad I asked the question. I'm glad she said yes. And with Mary Robinson go our hopes. No, I asked that question in 1977. Christie said yes as well. This was a political question, and I'm glad she said yes. And I say to Mary Robinson, our president-elect, with her go our hopes and our aspirations for this country during her office of presidency. Mary Robinson, 
if we look at your background, coming from a, a comfortable background in uh, a provincial town, a conservative provincial town, what was the inspiration that turned you from being the type of person that maybe we could expect to see coming from there, and even going back to there, into the type of radical that you've become? I think initially it was through um, a commitment uh, to law. Um, I had a grandfather who influenced me greatly, um, who was a very strong believer in justice, and that the law had its own integrity, and that you know it had a very fundamental role in, uh, I think, liberating people, trying to achieve um, greater justice. So um, when I became a law student, I had a commitment to certain areas at an early stage. I mean, the paper that I delivered as the auditor of the Law Society in Trinity in 1967 contained a very significant, significant number of proposals for law reform that became part of what we call the liberal agenda in Ireland. That was in 1967. And I think that uh, was um, an area that uh, I found um, particularly interesting and I was very committed to. And it was really when I went to Harvard immediately after uh, uh, finishing in the law school in Trinity that I encountered a society questioning itself um, in a way that I think very much influenced me. They were questioning the values of the Vietnam War. They were questioning um, the issues in relation to civil rights in the South. Um, they were um, questioning legal education. And I was in a place where this was done at an extraordinary level. Um, the teaching at Harvard and the quality of the law students um, was um, such that um, I found it uh, very energising for a start and very open. Uh, people were questioning their professors. Now, that didn't happen in Trinity. And their professors were providing very good answers. And that mightn't have happened either. And all in all, it, it was a very seminal time for me. And when I came back to Ireland, I think I carried a self-confidence about issues that was unusual at the time. And that was one of the reasons why I stood for the Senate quite early after that and was elected in, in 1969. If I hadn't gone to the States and taken part in this um, very deep and at the same time high-level discussion in their society about what they were questioning, I don't think I'd have had the self-confidence to come back and apply much the same kind of thinking to an Irish context. But if you say that you had a lot of these points in your, 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 your speech as Auditor of the Law Society uh, in, in Trinity, there was clearly something there in the first place, something that was radical and different. And given that you lived in Dublin with four brothers, two of whom played rugby and two of whom socialised, uh, apart from passing exams, which all of them did, of course, um, th th there must have been something quite different about you. So you put it down to your, your grandfather. I find it hard to say exactly. Um, certainly I was uh, quite serious about my studies, but I also participated in an enormous number of things in Trinity. And we had a flat in 21 Westland Row, which was the house where Oscar Wilde was born. And I remember writing a letter to my father early on um, addressed Wild House, <laughs> Westland Row. And we, we had a, a very uh, open house there um, in the flat. Uh, we saw a great many people and we had very good parties. And I think there was a... Uh, an opportunity for a much broader uh, way of, um, uh, you know, t you sort of, um, I mean, a lot of our friends, for example, a very close friend of mine then and now was Ivan Boland, um, the, the poet. And, uh, you know, I had a great interest in poetry and in the theatre and that. And, and I, when I look back on um, the time in, in, in Trinity, I regret that modern students don't have the time and the luxury that we had. Um, for that broader experience, which is probably as important as anything you learn in the classroom. 
But all the time, um, I had a serious mental dimension. I mean, I recognize that myself. I mean, um, and I recognize it even subsequently, bringing my own children and lots of young nephews and nieces to the seaside in the west of Ireland. Um, I would be running along the beach with them, thoroughly enjoying it, but probably thinking about either um, some legislative reform or um, why don't we have better local government in Ireland. I just do that, and I don't know why. <laughs> David Norris, later to be a colleague of Mary's as another TCD senator, knew her and her brothers right back to college days. There's a degree, I think, in Mary of what you might call noblesse oblige. She does, as you say, come from a privileged background. Uh, when I knew her first, uh, she was an undergraduate with me in Trinity, and uh, she was uh, one of the Burks of Mayo, and they had a, a townhouse in Westland Row, uh, presided over by a, a, a nanny, and her four brothers and herself lived there while they were undergraduates. Her two brothers uh, used to go all over the place to parties, and they weren't averse sometimes to gate-crashing parties. But it's the two younger ones. It's the two younger ones, indeed, yes. Great fun, but quite uh, uproarious in their own way. But uh, when you're invited to a party in Western Row, I mean, you were practically x-rayed by the porters before you were allowed in through the door. Uh, but Mary was always uh, above and beyond that sort of thing. There was a kind of a driving force behind her. I mean, she was genuinely committed. She was intellectually excited uh, by the law. And I remember I was elected to Foundation Scholarship uh, in English in 1965, which was the same year that Mary was elected to Foundation Scholarship in Legal Science. And round about that time, or shortly afterwards, there were the merger proposals and a committee of scholars... That's the merger of Trinity and UCD. The merger of Trinity and UCD, which was resisted uh, by most elements inside Trinity. People were afraid that there was a sinister plot. There may or may not have been, but in any case, uh, it was felt that the individuality and the ethos, so to speak, of the college would be submerged if this happened. Um, now, uh, a group of us on the scholars' committee... Uh, decided to make our views known and um, uh, we were advised of course by Mary who was at that stage uh, uh, studying law and uh, she discovered for example that um, the uh, nothing could be done without the consent of the full corporation of the college as legally constituted uh, which included the provost fellows and scholars, so that we had a right to be consulted and that nothing could be done without us. And that was my first uh, real contact with her uh, as a legal brain. It was not till more than ten years later that Mary met Bride Rosney, who became her friend and confidant and who is now to become her personal advisor at Arasanukdaran. I first met Mary, as you say, in terms of the Woodkey campaign and at that stage I think it was her determination to see what we believe to be the will of the people um, to be fulfilled. Um, she was obviously um, a legal advisor to the people who were involved in it. And even though she was also politically involved, her overriding concern was that the wishes of the citizens of Dublin would be met in whatever way was possible. And I think it was that determination. I remember at the time somebody saying to me, you can be hurt into politics. And that, I think, applied to me in that I was hurt into an involvement. And I, once I got involved and I met Mary, I realised there was somebody else who'd obviously been hurt in the same sort of way. How do you mean hurt? Um, the hurt at that time was that there was a national monument and so on which was being destroyed, and that hurt me as a person. I think, you know, I, I don't know what hurt Mary earlier, but I think it was perhaps some, how she felt that she was discriminated in some way at some time, be it personally or in a broader sense, and that that was what motivated her into getting involved. 
And how did the, the, the friendship then develop into the very uh, strong relationship which it has become, uh, which is leading you to become a personal advisor to her now in her presidency? It developed very gradually. Um, initially, I, I must admit, I was a bit um, intimidated on in meeting Mary Robinson because I certainly knew her as a public profile, a senator and so on. And um, I, in common with most people, I think would have felt that she was somewhat distant. But very, very quickly, we just seemed to be on the wavelength, um, a common wavelength. And I couldn't honestly say when our uh, friendship was cemented. On a personal level, I feel it was cemented um, in 1981 when her son was born and she asked me to be his godmother. But it obviously, that was about three years after I met her. And it just has developed and got stronger all the time. I think Mary's probably somebody who doesn't make friends easily, but when she does, she makes them for life. Why, why in '69 the Senate? Uh, because obviously, having gone through the, the, the experience in Harvard and having gone through the additional legal training, uh, there was the opportunity to, to take on a full-time, whole-time career uh, in law. So where does the Senate fit into that? Well, I did start to practice at the bar, and I also, first of all, tutored in UCD for a year, and then I was made Reed Professor, um, which is a part-time. It was a, a chair for a practicing barrister. And I... Um, found the possibility of participating um, in the Senate um, a great opportunity, for example, to put forward the private bills. And uh, I started with, for example, the legalisation of contraceptives. That was one of the issues that I had raised in that auditor's paper in, in 1967. Um, it was just a, a very real forum both to uh, put forward and debate things and also to bring forward private members' bills. And I think what happened then, which led to my joining the Labour Party in 1976, was a deepening of my um, you know, economic and social awareness. Um, that came later, I think. Senator Robinson was in the Labour Party by the time she was joined in 1981 on the Trinity panel by Senator Shane Ross. She was a very, very strong, very experienced campaigner. She knew the constituency absolutely backwards. She's been through it since, I suppose, 1969, 1970. Uh, she was tough. She was good. She was friendly. But she was a very, very difficult person to compete with because, obviously, she was a very formidable personality and she was an established person with a clear liberal record, certainly. And how would you describe that personality in terms of its, its political sharpness? Well, it was very acute indeed. Um, when I came into the Senate first, uh, on day one, it was quite apparent that Mary Robinson was one of the most formidable people in the Senate. I think at the time maybe she was, she was in the Labour Party and she was a committed member of the Labour Party and I think on the left of the Labour Party, in fact, or considered to be at the time. Uh, but she was sort of independent Labour. She, wasn't, she was of it but not quite in it and not, not really part of the mainstream of the Labour Party. She was always ploughing her own furrow within the limits that, that she was allowed to do. Uh, and I think to a certain extent they didn't uh, completely trust her. I think they felt that maybe she'd... she'd, she'd, she'd go out of line at some stage, which was, which was very refreshing for those of us who were independents, but I think a little bit uh, disturbing for the Labour Party at the time. Mary provided something very valuable here uh, because she had 
brilliance uh, in uh, legal terms. Um, she could have turned down any of these cases. But if you look at the cases that Mayor Robinson took, they are an agenda of the most important social issues of the last couple of decades. Contraception, uh, homosexuality, uh, divorce, uh, the right of access uh, to the courts on behalf of all the citizens of the country. I could go on and on and on. Virtually every major social issue uh, that has come uh, through the process of constitutional action has been championed by Mary Robinson. It is a unique uh, record and I think a most important one. At the same time, the fact that Mary is a professional person, that she's a barrister, enabled her to take on these cases uh, and operate almost surgically. It's almost as if her professional qualifications and her legal expertise were, were kind of surgical gloves, rubber gloves. Mary could deal with these very precisely uh, and argue the merits of the case without any of the odium attaching to her that might well attach to somebody who was... Uh, out in a more shrill fashion on the barricades, uh, as, for example, somebody like myself uh, might have been. But I think her role is, even, is more important uh, than that of the people who are prominent on the barricades. Because at the end of the day, uh, changes, alterations in uh, public opinion were forced not just by rhetoric, not just by uh, public campaigns, but also by a series of moral, intellectual, and sometimes actual uh, victories in the courts uh, on these issues. I found it very frustrating at times um, to be defending a particular uh, issue or proposal, particularly when the Labour Party was participating in government that I didn't agree with. Um, I, I, I found that there was um, a constraint that uh, you know, I, I really didn't like um, you went along with it, there was the party whip, but I, I really found it very constraining. I also um, uh, found that a great deal of the focus, um, and this is not the Labour Party, because I think the Labour Party was honourably trying to broaden that focus, but a great deal of the focus of party politics is very narrow. Uh, and this may be um, uh, the um, system of, of, of election. There's a lot to be said for proportional representation, but it doesn't encourage um, deputies to stand out on issues of principle. Because if they do, they may find they have a running mate from their own party who will stand against them and beat them. <laughs> um, I hope that this recent presidential election has opened up uh, Irish politics a bit in that way and that more stands will be taken um, on issues that in the short term may seem issues that would cost politicians votes. How difficult was, her, was it for her, therefore, to leave uh, the Labour Party in 1985, or was it difficult? I think it was a very serious issue of principle. And above all, Mary is very highly principled, and therefore the actual decision, while there would have been torment and so on attached to it, the decision was made easy because of the circumstances. That would be my belief. Did she, did she make this in a very personal, individual way, or did she take advice and consult about it? Um, to my knowledge, she just talked with her husband about it. I mean, I was aware of it that evening after it, uh, but she had taken the decision by that stage. And certainly I think all of the people... Um, who she would have talked with afterwards would have been very supportive because it was so clear from talking to her just how strongly she felt about it. But not a woman who's run by committee? Absolutely not. There's no question of that. Uh, I think that that incident demonstrated two remarkable qualities that she has. Um, the first is her absolute integrity, uh, that she will take a decision, even if it appears to 
across uh, the direction of her own political ambitions and her future. Uh, but the other more important thing is that she has uh, something that I, I would call intellectual imagination. Imagination of any kind in politics is rather a rare quality, and intellectual imagination is even rarer. And by that I mean that although she came from a very different background, as a Roman Catholic from the west of Ireland, um, she was able imaginatively and intellectually to comprehend the situa situation in which the Unionist uh, people in the north of Ireland had found themselves. In the small context of the six counties, they are a majority, and rather a bullying majority, not one to which people down here particularly would be naturally attracted. But Mary had the wisdom and the vision to see that they were people who were cornered by a kind of historical accident, and to try intellectually to understand and to imagine what their situation, what their plight must be, and to feel very strongly, although she would disagree fundamentally with them, that they also had a right to be consulted. They had to be respected, and their views had to be taken into account in any accommodation that would uh, cover the entire island. And for that reason, I think again that her election is important because there have been interesting signals from some of the most entrenched Unionist sources in, the Northern, Isle, in Northern Ireland whom you would not normally expect to congratulate uh, a president of the Republic of Ireland. So it seems almost as if in some uh, curious way Mary Robinson is reaching out and becoming in a way a president for all the people, not just in the Republic, but also somebody who can be regarded uh, with affection and respect by all sections in the North of Ireland. And I think that is a great achievement. And it's because she has that curious thing, intellectual imagination. Well, talking about 1985, that's when you left the Labour Party uh, over the Anglo-Irish Agreement. Now, uh, that, I think, was, was, was a surprise. No one expected anyone in the politics of the Republic uh, to, to leave anything over the Anglo-Irish Agreement because it was something which had uh, a great body of support here. Was that totally bound up with your, your, your feeling that the Unionists had not been consulted, or was it also to do with the frustration that you're talking about growing in you about the Labour Party? It was primarily um, a concern about what had happened during 1985. Um, Northern Ireland has always been extremely important to me in um, my involvement from the earliest days in the Senate and right through and will continue to be um, as president. It was something that it was very important during the presidential campaign and will be very important to me to be able to extend the hand of friendship. That's very high on my inner agenda. Um, I participated in the New Ireland Forum. I have participated in numerous conferences down the years. I know the elected representatives in the North very well. I visit there more than most um, public representatives from this part of the country. And um, from an early stage in 1985, I was very worried because I could see that there was a momentum in the negotiations between the two governments, that Mrs Thatcher had in fact decided to you know, go through with an agreement that it was very important to the coalition government, very important to Dr Fitzgerald and indeed to Dick Spring, for reasons which were partly, though not, I mean, it was important on its own merits, but also nothing else was right. I mean, the economy was in great difficulty. Um, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't an achievement. And I think this became a very important achievement um, from that perspective, and it is a very important achievement. I mean, I, I have complicated views on it. But in the... Um, situation of uh, it being possible to finalise it. I think it was finalised without um, an, a real effort being made, mixture of carrot and stick, to say to the unionists, look, this is what we have in mind and we're going to do it. Now, what, what do you say to it? And, you know, in other words, enter into 
a tough negotiation at that stage, saying to them, you know, we've made up our minds, we're going ahead with this now. What are you? And, and that didn't happen. Also, what didn't happen, and that was very fundamental, was we didn't amend Articles 2 and 3 of the Constitution. Um, not abolish them. I've never been in favour of abolishing the national aspiration, the um, perfectly legitimate and cultural fundamental aspiration um, to uh, unity on this island. But we should have, in the process of the Anglo-Irish Agreement, um, also uh, modified by in introducing into our constitution the guarantee in Article 1 of the Anglo-Irish Agreement. And that might have provided um, the possible acceptance by the unionist community um, of the Anglo-Irish Agreement. It was clear to me that because of neither um, aspect of it, um, that it was unlikely that this agreement was going to be accepted. I spoke to um, Dr Fitzgerald, I spoke to Dick Spring, I spoke in the Labour Parliamentary Party for weeks before the actual signing. So my views were very well known. And then I participated in the joint meeting um, on the um, Saturday, I think it was, um, Leinster House was opened up after the signing. And there was a sort of euphoria. I mean, I know that this happens when something historic has taken place, but the euphoria um, greatly overstated the position and didn't seem to understand the process. And I felt, you know, I have to do something that really signifies that. Now, I think it didn't, um, you know, it didn't break my heart to leave the Labour Party because I had felt that I was, um, you know, that I wasn't really playing a very significant role, that I really I'd be better off simply to go back to being an independent if, 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 if you know, so in that sense... I wouldn't have left the Labour Party but for the Anglo-Irish Agreement, but when it came to it, it didn't break my heart to leave the Labour Party in the way that it might somebody else. Um, and um, I was more concerned to make um, a statement. I didn't vote against the Anglo-Irish Agreement because I was in favour of an Anglo-Irish Agreement that would provide a framework for peace and stability. Um, I was um, both surprised and, I think, greatly encouraged by the significant number of letters that I got following my resignation I kept out of any public debate on it for quite a while after that because I didn't want to, uh, in fact, either rock any boat or cause any difficulty. And I certainly didn't want to be somehow seen as being somebody who was speaking for unionist politicians. In fact, I wasn't. I didn't share the view of unionist politicians and don't. Um, they have a different perspective. Um, what, I, what I was more worried about was that it wouldn't be the framework for peace and reconciliation, um, which I think, unfortunately, it hasn't been, not within Northern Ireland. It's a very, very useful mechanism and um, has uh, stood the test of time um, between the two governments. It has helped to resolve a lot of the flashpoints and many crises and, and serious issues that have arisen, and it is a, a very good vehicle as between the two governments. But it hasn't, in fact, resolved the situation within the North. Mary was again an independent senator. She fought and won the 1987 election. In 1989, she called it a day. Shane Ross. And it appeared at that stage that, that, that her political life had run its course, uh, that she'd done wonderful things in the 70s, that she'd joined the Labour Party, and that it hadn't worked, that she hadn't actually got into the Doyle, which she'd tried twice, uh, that she hadn't become Attorney General, that she hadn't been successful in getting the Cabinet where she probably ought to have been, uh, and that she decided to, to apply her energies to something else, which was the, the uh, European law uh, institution which she's setting up in Trinity. And the extraordinary thing was that she actually, having, that having obviously decided that political life was over, and that there were plenty of other options open to her, that she came back to it so quickly and so readily, and that, that when Dick Spring came to her and said this, that she jumped at it. And it's, this, it's a very strange contradiction, having done 20 years, and obviously having said, I've had enough of this, that she suddenly says, yes, I would like to be president after all. I, I, I don't understand it, but it's quite fascinating. 
Well, you stayed in, although you'd left the Labour Party, you stayed in for, for one further Senate uh, after that, and then in 1989 decided, no, you had enough. Why? Um, because I had been involved in May of 1988, I think it was, yes, um, in the establishment of the Irish Centre for European Law, which is based in Trinity College, but it's run by its own board and it draws from the academic and the professional, the trade union and the agricultural world. And it was a centre um, geared to preparing um, all sectors for the challenge of 1992. Now, in a way, that's politics with a small p, because we desperately need to know the small print of um, the single market, of developments in agriculture, of developments in mobility of people and professional people, equality issues, socialism. And I found that it was um, an, a great opportunity um, to use my knowledge and skills as somebody who taught European community law and really um, to, uh, um, if you like, um, um, give that contribution in the public sector because I was the unpaid director. It was a, a role that I took on in a voluntary way um, and continued my practice at the bar. And I found that it was, all, it was very demanding and also increasingly more real than going in for a debate in the Senate and hearing you know, a lot of the same issues rehashed. Um, and I, I realised that, I'd, that I'd, I'd, I'd run my course in the Senate. I, I'd been there for 20 years. It was long enough to be in that club that I wasn't even finding in myself the innovative um, energy and creativity that had been there up to then. And so, with some reluctance, but nonetheless, I think I, I was glad I did it. I cut out of that so that I could concentrate on the work of the centre. And it was that mixture of practising at the bar. Um, I had joined chambers in London. I had joined a group of lawyers in Brussels. And also um, being involved as, as the honorary director of the Irish Centre for European Law that I was completely happy about and fulfilled in when the surprising question was posed as to whether I would um, uh, accept a nomination for the uh, presidency. <laughs> Fergus Finlay, I suppose the, 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 the obvious thing to start with is just to ask you, why Mary Robinson? Well, if you remember, uh, Rodney, Dick Spring had uh, given an interview on the 5th of January in which he said that he was determined that the presidency should be contested. In fact, he was so determined that uh, he went on to say that if necessary, he'd contest it himself. Uh, now, that uh, was uh, very badly received by a lot of people at the time, but it did accomplish the objective uh, of ensuring that there was going to be a contest and that Brian Lennon couldn't be regarded as a shoe-in for the, for the job. Um, having accomplished that objective, he then set about the business of trying to uh, find the sort of candidate who would mount a credible challenge. Uh, and the process that he followed was not one of drawing up a list of names and uh, gradually eliminating them one by one. He actually asked a couple of people um, to develop a job description uh, for the candidate and for the presidency uh, so that it would be possible to uh, put forward the notion that we were in a credible way going to change uh, the job description of the presidency. Um, he did a lot of work on that himself. Other people did work on it too. And when it was finished, um, there really was only one person who filled the job description. It required somebody who understood the Constitution, who had a very solid track record, and it required somebody who would have an appeal over and above the appeal of the Labour Party, because with 10% of the popular vote, 
um, you can't guarantee uh, election to anybody. Um, so Mary, in fact, emerged from that process uh, almost, almost naturally uh, and was the only person that he ever considered for the job. Fergus Finlay is press spokesman for Dick Spring. The two of them, along with former Attorney General John Rogers, prepared the job description. John Rogers began the process of persuasion. It turned out that I approached Mary one morning uh, early and, um, well, it was an interesting uh, interview. It was... Uh, I know Mary well because I work with her, obviously, and um, this came to her completely out of the blue. I rang her before I went, simply. I said, I'd like to see you for a few minutes to discuss something with you. And I had some uh, ideas on paper, which uh, I left with her. Now, when I mentioned it, as I, sorry, as I mentioned it, as I mentioned the idea, I think essentially the idea at that stage was to um, uh, try to re-establish our institutions, the presidency among them. Uh, in the middle of the conversation, I saw her face actually um, collapse. Uh, she, she began to understand that uh, I was there on some other mission. And um, she was terribly taken aback. Uh, when I got over the surprise of the subject being raised, I think I was mentally formulating a no, but because it was an honour to be asked, I said I would take the weekend to consider. And um, then I started to discuss it with Nick. And as I started to discuss it, um, it, it occurred to me that there was the kind of challenge that I um, find particularly interesting, um, an office that is of constitutional importance, that is democratic, you know, representative if you have an election, and yet um, underdeveloped. <laughs> and so uh, a lot of the things that um, interest me, a lot of my skills, a lot of the appeal of uh, uh, trying to, uh, um, to play that sort of role in public life that, that is different um, uh, just came together. And, and uh, so um, initially, I think um, the, the main motivation was to say, look, um, let's really take the office of president seriously. And I'm prepared to go forward and try to shape it, try to, to really say, you know, this is what it can mean with the ingredients in the Constitution and it should be more relevant. The next meeting was of two teams. John Rogers and Fergus Finlay accompanied Dick Spring. Bride Rosney was one of two with Mary and Nick. Uh, it was a meeting that started quite late, uh, at the end of everybody's working day, and went on, as I recall, until the early hours of the morning. Um, there were a lot, of, uh, a lot of things discussed about the kind of campaign that would be necessary to run, the kind of commitment that would be necessary to make. For example, it was agreed and understood at that very first meeting um, that this would be a six-month campaign and that Mary would be on the road virtually from that day on. Um, and I, I think she may well have found that a bit daunting. It's the longest campaign that anyone's ever run. Um, but the only issue, essentially, of contention that night was the question of uh, her rejoining the, the Labour Party. Um, Dick felt, uh, and said so at the meeting, that it would be easier to sell her to the Labour Party, um, who, after all, would be the people who'd be the, the primary source of support uh, if she were a member. She felt very strongly that uh, she didn't want to be in a position where people would say to her or about her, she only joined the party in order to get the nomination. Um, and eventually, uh, I think she persuaded Dick uh, of the merits of uh, an independent-minded person um, 
running for the job. It was a difficult meeting to some extent in that she was still not 100% sure. I mean, she'd initially been approached individually on a one-to-one basis by John Rogers. And the meeting, there were several meetings, but the one you're referring to was uh, shortly after that initial approach. Um, I'm sure it was difficult. I mean, she certainly conducted herself... From that day, I felt almost as a president, uh, yeah, certainly as a presidential candidate. I mean, the, um, the mannerisms, mannerisms and so on that she developed over the years in um, as a courtroom lawyer were there. I mean, she was probing, she was questioning, she was not accepting anything. But equally, she knew her own position. She had obviously gone back and looked at the Constitution and, for all I know, probably the presidential acts and so on. But, I mean, she knew that she was on a particular ground. There were certain issues she would not depart from. She was very open to discussion. Um, and there wasn't any sort of conflict or anything at the meeting. A lot of toing and froing. There were certain issues that had to be resolved. But, I mean, Mary had established, I mean, perhaps the bottom line that she was very determined on was that she would not rejoin the Labour Party. And that was an issue that she stuck on. And yet the other thing that she must have been thinking, or certainly the people who are listening to this would think that she must have been thinking, was that she couldn't possibly win. It's a Fianna Fáil job. It was. It isn't now, is it? Um, I th- yes, I mean, I think that is true. I certainly felt at the time, and I did voice it, um, and, you know, I think Mary would um, condone this comment, that success would have been measured in a different uh, format than actually winning. Um, that a lot of issues could have been raised, which were raised. I mean, even the very basic one of the opening up of the hours to people. Um, they, they could be raised and that, if you like, somebody else could steal her clothing and that would be success. Uh, success could have been measured in any terms. It obviously would not have been successful if she ended up with 12, 15, 14, uh, whatever percent of the poll. But um, I, I think when she determined to enter, there was going to be success. It was just what amount of success could be achieved when did you decide that it was definitely happening and it was going to win? Well, in the middle of July, um, uh, I put down £100 at 10 to 1 with Paddy Power. Um, that, I think, uh, was possibly more uh, an investment of faith than, than total confidence. Um, I don't think it was until we saw the national tour on the road and until we saw the momentum that was there that we were very sure that she was going to win. In fact, a lot of us felt... I know Dick Spring did, um, that the tapes affair in the end could have undone Mary by generating sympathy for uh, Brian Lenehan. He was more confident, uh, and so was I, um, the Monday before the tapes affair broke than we were the Monday after it. But way before that traumatic moment, Mary Robinson claims she'd come to believe back in September that she would win. It brought the first feeling of terror there was in early September um, a thought process, you know, not entirely unlike that. I mean, I, I actually facing up to the implications, and it was quite early in September, and I was still the only candidate in the field. But I real and, and I, you know, presumed it would be Brian Lenehan, and didn't know who Finn Gale would put up at that stage. Um, uh, th- there was, um, you know, I think a weekend uh, when Nick and myself had a, had that sort of a, uh, a conversation about it, saying, look, you know, we really have to be prepared to. Um, realise that this may very well end up in changing the next seven years of our lives. And at that stage, I think, because we had decided to enjoy the campaign and, and had enjoyed it and had been, in our own way, you know, very enriched by it, I, I, I think we were prepared for it. And it, if, if anything, it kind of strengthened 
our enthusiasm, which generated to the enormous uh, enthusiasm and work done by those who worked on the campaign. But is it also personal? Is it a need for, for, for personal friends uh, to be closely, supportively connected to you? I, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I, I think um, this was a campaign which stretched us, um, you know, <laughs> to a very extraordinary degree. Um, and therefore, uh, um, the support of a core of people, you know, w with a similar commitment um, was an enormous help. Uh, I think the fundamental one was Nick. I mean, I think his support on the campaign throughout uh, was, uh, you know, emotionally and in every other way. And, and in fact, um, you know, in, 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 he was the one who would, um, you know, quite often say, you know, no, I don't think you should, or I don't like the way you're putting that. Or, I mean, he, he would quite often um, say, yeah, give me the really good advice, which is the advice you don't want to hear, <laughs> but in fact is, is right. Um, but I, I think that, you know, it, it was more by the nature of the campaign that it was a, a very stretching campaign, that it, it was necessary to have um, the support and um, total commitment of a few core friends. The, the other thing that's been talked about a lot during the, the, the campaign, apart from the issues, is the image, uh, the changes that had to be, had to be made, uh, the maybe getting rid of courtroom mannerisms, certainly getting rid of some of the private nature uh, of, of Mary Robinson. How much of a battle was that? It honestly wasn't a battle at all. And I mean, I, in a way, that is probably the first agonizing that went on. The initial agonizing was about that, because I mentioned the family and family life having to become public to some extent. Equally, way back in February, she said, you know, how I see this is I will be going for a job. I will be going for an interview. The uh, interview panel will be the entire electorate of Ireland, and I'm going to have to put on the best side possible. We all do it when we go to interviews. So, I mean, that was her determination at the beginning. Various people came along and suggested and made excellent suggestions about what the change should be. But I think as early as February, before there was any public announcement, she had already come to terms with that, and it was part of not only the courtroom mannerisms, but the courtroom dress. I think the campaign essentially, though, uh, was uh, driven by Mary herself. Um, there's been a lot of talk about handlers and strategists and um, uh, people putting together packages and all that kind of thing. The reality is that Mary Robinson uh, was her own idea. Um, she, was, she stood on a set of values that everyone knew she represented, that she couldn't escape from if she wanted to. Um, uh, she the only concession, if you like, that she made uh, was that she changed her hairstyle. Um, and that turned into a great idea, not only because it made her look uh, as, as good as she could look, but also because it gave her a great degree of confidence. Never did the hairstyle have a greater impact than when it, along with other things, was mentioned by Porrick Flynn on Saturday View when his exchange with PD Chairman Michael McDool demonstrated what many people have since described to me as fundamentally divided views of today's Ireland. She was pretty well constructed for this uh, campaign uh, by her handlers, the Labour Party and the Workers' Party. Of course, it doesn't always suit if you get labelled a socialist because that's a very narrow focus in this country. So she has to try and have it both ways. She has her new clothes and her new look and her new hairdo and she has the new interest in family, being a mother and all that kind of thing. But none of us, you know, none of us who knew Mary very well uh, in previous incarnations ever heard her claiming to be the great wife Can I interrupt, can I interrupt the minister? Mary, can I interrupt the minister? Now, wait a moment. Mary Robinson reconstructs herself 
to fit the fashion of the time. That's outrageous. So, so we have this thing about you can be substituted at, at, at will, whether it's the pro-socialism thing or the pro-contraception or pro-abortion or whatever it is. But at least we should know... That's, that's outrageous. That, that Mary outrageous Robinson, and desperate. Mary Robinson is a socialist. She says it. She has admitted it uh, previously. Now, she may have changed her mind, and if she has changed her mind, so be it. But at least she should tell us that she's changed her mind and not be misleading people. And that's okay, okay. Michael, Michael McDowell? Um, I was going to ask you, since you'd read the front page of the Irish Times, whether you had read the interior of the Irish Times and would be therefore in a position to comment on what Mr Brown said about uh, he, his view, which he uh, expounded to the people of Wexford, that Mary Robinson supported abortion and would turn Oris and Uthron into an abortion clinic. I now have it from you that you are throwing the same dirt at her. I think really you're a disgrace, Mr. No, Mr. Wait, wait, Mr. Flynn. I think you are a, quite a disgrace, and I think you should withdraw the remarks you made. And I also, I also heard you... Listen to me now for a second. It's about time, Minister and all as you are, that you learn some manners. It's about time that you realise that you can't say that that lady has a new interest in her family. She's a family woman. I know her family, and I think it's disgusting to hear you. Parik Flynn apologised later for his remarks, but they dominated the end of the campaign... Mary Robinson tomorrow becomes the seventh president of Ireland. She and her friends have their expectations. First, Bride Rosney. It's a challenge. Mary has a mandate from the people. Um, I think there's every indication to show that um, the government are going to support her in the implementation of that mandate. And I know it is a very, very tough challenge, but it is no tougher than any of the challenges she's come through successfully to date. I think we will genuinely see a president who will be in touch with the people and the people in touch with the president. We don't expect anything of Mary Robinson. I mean, Mary Robinson is now uh, a president. She's outside party politics. Um, uh, she, she doesn't owe us anything. Um, she, what, she, what she owes, she owes to herself, to the commitment she's made, to the values she stands for and so on. Um, I would be uh, very confident uh, that Mary Robinson... Uh, will make a difference for every day of the next seven years that she's there. Uh, and I don't see how it can be any other way. I mean, already, uh, because Mary Robinson has been an elected to an office that's outside party politics and that has nothing to do with party politics, every party in Doyle Aaron is starting to talk about divorce again. Um, so it's quite clear that even from that position, where she hasn't said a word about it herself, she's still setting the agenda. Uh, but you now have a position where a woman is commander-in-chief of the army, uh, where a woman will lead the nation when it comes to remembrance of, of men who died for their country, where a woman will go on to Croke Park um, to congratulate and wish well uh, young men who are representing their country. Those kind of symbols and those kind of uh, gestures can't fail to make a difference. You've talked all the time about the presidency as a resource. Hmm. How do you see that resource being used in the, in, the, in the early months of your presidency? I think it is a good way to see it. And the reason for that is there, a resource is something that you draw upon. Um, I think it can be um, a resource in a number of different ways which relate to the kind of themes of the presidency. And, for example, in relation to Northern Ireland, um, to extend the hand of friendship, to bring trade unionists, women's groups, environmental groups, to meet their counterparts in Aris and Uthron, to respond to uh, any invitations to come um, coming from um, groups or individuals in the north um, in relation to the emigrants, the same thing, to have a particular interest and, and, and signal that and uh, uh, bring some of the emigrant support groups <coughs> to Arasan Uthron, um, the kind of community and women support groups around the country. And um, 
you've talked about a non-confrontational presidency, but do you think that by, in trying to, to, to have a presence in such a broad field that there's bound to be some type of tension, at least, that develops between the presidency and, and the executive in that sense? I don't think so. Um, and, I, and I, in fact, I've never thought so. I mean, that came up during the campaign, and I think it was a campaign issue, and that's fair enough. Um, there are a number of reasons why I don't think so. Um, I am by nature a lawyer, so I work within the system. It's not in my nature uh, to go outside the framework. Uh, I, uh, to a fault, I stay within um, the, the constitution and rules and the framework. Uh, um, and uh, I would want to. I would not want in any way to be confrontational or to um, uh, do something which even inadvertently uh, caused um, controversy or difficulty. And secondly, uh, the kinds of areas and the kinds of themes um, are ones which uh, should be uh, both um, handled and addressed in a completely different way. I, I, it may take quite considerable skill, but uh, I think there has been the opportunity, even during the campaign, um, to interact with local groups on the ground in a way which makes it quite clear that the president has no role and will have no role in policymaking, in budget, in those sort of decisions. That doesn't matter if you've got a president who's valuing what's going on, who's valuing um, the um, importance of it for the self-development of a local community or whatever. People actually you know, don't expect of their president a policy-making role. They expect, and are, are, when I say they expect, they are, I think, very pleased if the president um, is more accessible and more around as president, not as anything else. I think as president is very important, and that is a very limited role. It's one person for a start, and it's a limited role but I think it, 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 it is a significant one. Tomorrow she'll be President of Ireland, officially. After the election, her first duty was to go home. Here's Fine Gael's Jim Higgins at Moylet's Corner in Ballina and Mary's brother Adrian just afterwards, and the President herself. As Mary quite rightly said in the RDS, the count, on the eve of yesterday evening, the hand that rocked the cradle rocked the system and now can rule the world. Adrian, just one point. We were all at college together, including Mary. She was a bit of a swat then. Uh, she was a bit of a swat, but behind that swatting from which she got all of her first-class honours, as you well know, Rodney, from being in college with her, she was a total tomboy. Wasn't she brought up by her four brothers? And what else could she be? Well, they never thought she was going to be president. Um, probably not. No, not in those days. But she was going to do something awful, and she's just done it, and it's wonderful. I will be a president for all the people, but I am not only a president of those who are present here today, but of those who cannot be here. And there will always be a light on in Arasan Uktharan for our exiles and for our emigrants, those of whom the poet Paul Durkin so movingly wrote, and I quote Paul Durkin, yet I have no choice but to leave, to leave, and yet there is nowhere I more yearn to live than in my own wild countryside, backside to the wind.